Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What do Michigan voters' ideas and views ahead of the midterm elections tell us about optimism and the economy and the future? Gavin Bade of Politico has written a piece about us being nostalgic for our economic past and maybe not focusing enough on the future. He's going to join us today to discuss his piece and tell us what Michigan tells us about America. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to tune in. So there was a moment late during the pandemic when some things started to feel just a little more optimistic. The labor market was getting tighter. People were getting higher wages. There was even talk, and still is, of people forming things like labor unions. But that optimism never really seemed to reach so many communities here in Michigan. Here, we still really feel left out of the recovery that has happened in some other parts of the country. Costs are high for almost everything. Housing, prescription, drug prices, health care, child care, elder care, transit, and safe retirement. All of these things they cost a lot of money, and our incomes are not keeping up in a way that allow us to pay for many of them. That means these things have become more pressing issues, shouldered by individuals or a few family members and causing a lot of anxiety and concern. Now, the jobs that used to pay for these things, the jobs that we were so accustomed to just kind of slipping into in life here in Michigan, they're not coming back. Many of them are just gone. Automakers and suppliers that used to be happy hiring tens of thousands of people are now excited to hire just a couple hundred or a couple thousand. According to new reporting by Politico reporter Gavin Bade, that fact has made people want. It's made us desire something that used to be, but kind of is no longer possible. In a new article titled Glory Days, Bade writes that people are expressing frustration that the jobs that we can get today, quote, don't offer the same pay, the same benefits, or community cohesion that we would remember from Michigan's industrial heyday. Bade says people express a nostalgia for a time when they didn't have to worry about paying for health care, could relax on their time off, and had freedom from constant financial anxiety. Bade recently went to Flint and to Lansing, two really pivotal and critical points in our local economy, and tried to understand why, despite an overall improving economy and more government investment, 
people are still anxious and people are still upset. Why are they still looking to the past for answers to the problems that we have today? A little later in the hour, we are going to welcome columnist Chad Livengood to this conversation about how Michigan should be shifting into an economy that's less reliant on a few auto giants. It's something we've talked with him several times before. But for now, with the midterm elections just around the corner, we want to talk with Gavin Bade about what he found when he came here to Michigan, to Flint, to Lansing. Why are people so nostalgic for the past. What exactly do they want? What are their biggest needs? And what do they think the solutions look like? Gavin Bade, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks so much, Stephen, and thanks for a really able and apt summary of the article. I don't even know if you need me to talk about it because that was <laughs> such a great way to describe it. But oh, really, no, there's really lots of detail. <laughs> There's lots of detail we still need to get to. Um, so, so again, you spent time in Lansing and in Flint talking with us Michiganders about our lives, what we think our prospects look like for the future. Of course, there are more jobs available and there are higher wages and we're in something of a dynamic job market right now. But people don't feel stable. Tell me why. Yeah, thanks so much. And I, I really, I should say, start out and say, you know, I'm a Michigander. I'm from Holland, from the west side of the state. Okay. And I'm yeah. one of those people who ended up leaving and then, you know, going to school elsewhere. And, and But still always had a, you know, a foot in Michigan. My family's still there. A lot of my friends are still there. And I still have a, a you know, deep respect and deep love for, for the state and for its people, right? I go back often. I may be a Michigander again one day. So I, I really wanted to go back and see, do, because all of the discussions in Washington right now are about rebuilding domestic manufacturing, right? We want to make the electric vehicles, the batteries, the computer chips of the future. We want to make them in the U.S., and we want to make them the Biden administration says, in places like Michigan, right? We've seen a lot of investment in whether it's electric vehicles or semiconductors, and these things are trumpeted by the government. I wanted to go back to Michigan and see, okay, jobs are starting to come back. We can see that in the numbers. We can see it with all of the help wanted signs all over Michigan. But how are people actually feeling? How is this relating to their everyday lives? And I found that, well, even though, pe- even though jobs are coming back, even though there, you know, you can probably go out and find a job today if you wanted one, it's still not delivering that same sort of community cohesion, that special something that we all look to in the industrial era in Michigan. I really wanted to try to define what that was. And you, you summarized it very well, right? There were, aspects, there were aspects of your life connected to your employment in industrial Michigan that made life a lot easier, right? Your good health care plan, your good pension, the good community schools that were supported by the tax dollars that those factories were paying Mm -hmm. and the people who were employed in them were paying. There was a sense of what scholars call social citizenship, things that you felt were afforded to you by being a citizen of the United States, a resident of Michigan, and a worker at one of these plants that were built into the fabric of American society, right? The idea of if you work at the plant, 
you can have a car in the driveway, maybe a boat, and maybe even a cabin up north. You know, this was what I was told was the, you know, the halicon days of Michigan's industrial past, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just not the case today. I mean, some, some factory jobs are very good. There's some wages are going up, but they're just not delivering those what you might call fringe benefits, but I would call the social, social citizenship aspects of the industrial economy that we all remember. And I think when we talk about trying to rebuild the economy, whether we're talking, whether it's Biden talking or whether it's the Trump administration folks with Make America Great Again, we're not just talking about a factory. We're talking about trying to rebuild that sense of community, that sense of American society that the industrial era afforded. The problem is corporations just aren't doing that anymore, right? We had a big, you know, this is what happened in the 1970s. You had the crisis of crisis of profitability. We started to outsource places and we started to slash the benefits for employees because U.S. companies had to be more competitive with companies overseas, right? Whether it was automakers, computer chip makers, other people, we started to outsource. We started to slim down. We started to automate more, right? And those, those things are still in effect now. So I wanted to come back and see, is there a way to rebuild this sort of community, this sort of what I would say is a society, hmm. this aspect of social citizenship when we are no longer the world's sole superpower, right? Because that whole idea of that economy and that aspect, those aspects of social citizenship, they came out of the post-war era when the U.S. really didn't have a lot of industrial superpowers to compete with. But now we do, right? Whether it's China, whether it's the advanced economies in Europe, it's a different ballgame. And I wonder, can we build that sense of society that so many people think we've lost? So, That's what so, I want to see. So when you're talking to people here, um, and, and I think you, you – quite quite ably describe this sense of nostalgia that people have but we have nostalgia for lots of things that that existed in the past that we know we're not going to have uh, anymore here in Detroit, uh, I talk all the time about how great it was when I was a kid that Hudson's was kind of the center of the commercial activity downtown and drew people from all over uh, the state to, to, to be here and created all kinds of economic activity that spilled over into other things. But I know, well, that's gone. And, and there are different things now in downtown Detroit. I mean, we're, we're doing a little better than we had been for a while, but I don't expect that things are going to go back the way they were. When you were talking mm-hmm. to people in Flint and Lansing about this, was there an expectation that we could go back, that we literally could get back to the things that they remembered? No, I think there was a deep distrust for that, right? Because uh, I'll say this, you know, the when you talk to Democrats in Washington, when you talk to the Biden administration, they seem to have a they have in theory a solution for this, right? Their ask their solution is to make the state the, the whether the government a bigger part of giving these aspects of social citizenship to people, right? Mm-hmm. So whether that's expanded health care, expanded child care, more, uh, more money for education on the local and state level, they want to, those things that, those aspects of social citizenship that used to be provided by private corporations in this sort of post-war pact that we made between corporate America and government, they took care of a lot of those fringe benefits, right? The corporations did. Um, now, since that's not happening anymore, Democrats say, well, the state needs to step in. We need to, not the state of Michigan necessarily, but the government needs to step in and 
relay some of, you know, and supply some of those aspects of social citizenship. Um, that's what the Build Back Better plan, which got slimmed down into the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. was really supposed to do, right? It was expanded child care. It was expanded health care. It was supposed to give you some of that breathing room economically that the industrial economy lost with this rush to competitiveness and efficiency over the last 40 years. The problem so is, do people believe people that that's going to work? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People don't necessarily trust it, right? Because they've been burned before. Everyone in Michigan know, remembers, I mean, if you're old enough, you remember what happened with NAFTA. A mm-hmm. Democratic president signed that. Many Democrats from Michigan opposed it, but it was still a Democrat who signed it, right? And you still had a lot of outsourcing that happened between then and now, right? So there is a deep distrust of government to be able to deliver on these things. And that's why I think you saw both Alyssa Slotkin and Dan Kildee so desperate when I did my uh, reporting over the summer, desperate to pass something, desperate to pass something that would lower insulin prices, lower uh, other prescription drug prices, something to show them, something to show their voters, hey, we're actually delivering. Government can actually do something. Because if you don't, then what are people going to slide back into? Resentment, xenophobia, Things like that. And I, I could see that happen some places when I was out reporting. So I think it's a it's a difficult thing to win that trust back because, quite frankly, it's been lost through broken promises over the past 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, you did this in advance of, of course, the midterm elections, and, and we're really close to them now, 12 days. And I, I'm curious about how what you learn translates into the races that we see here in Michigan and, and the, 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 I guess, tightness of some of the races, the, mm-hmm. the, the gaps that exist in others, and how that fits into the national narrative. Uh, midterm elections, I feel like, uh, typically are, are pretty predictable, right? The, the party mm-hmm. in power is going to lose some of that power because people are anxious. Um, it's always a question of degree. Uh, this seems to be a little bit different this year, at least in Michigan, because of uh, some specific factors. But I, but I wonder how what you learned um, uh, translates to what to what we're seeing right now with 12 days to go. Yeah. So part of why I wanted to go to Flint and Lansing is because they both have very competitive congressional races this time around, right, with Dan Kildee in the Flint area, Alyssa Slotkin um, around Lansing. Those are the two Democrat incumbents there. Um, And I found that, you know, they're going to have a tough time. Let me take a let me take them one by one. I think, you know, the Flint area, Dan Kildee, he seemed a little bit more secure. And if you look at polling, you look at election forecasts, his his race, most people expect him to win. Um, and as I followed him around, I went I saw his opponent as well. But as I went through the community, I mean, the Kildee name is really, really strong there. Obviously, his uncle held the seat sure. before. He has really deep roots in the community. His whole family does. You know, people know him. People know the name. People still trust that name, still trust the Kildee name. I remember one woman, you know, said, oh, I'll always vote for a Kildee. Sometimes I vote for Republicans, but I'll always vote for a Kildee. <laughs> Good family. People trust them. Right. Um, and so I think you see that, you know, there are other as it's kind of, uh, you know, down in Detroit, the Levin family was, you know, is, wasn't as big for a long time, a name that people know. So I think that, you know, people still trust Dan and they trust that he's trying to do the right thing for them. At least that's what I talked. I mean, obviously, you talk to a lot of Republicans who say I will hate, but the independents and the Democrats seem to seem to be pretty, pretty happy with him. Right. So I I expect him to be able to pull it out. 
Um, I think, you know, Slotkin's dif- district is more difficult. It, it was redistricted. They both were. Um, but now it's, it's probably an R- Republican plus one district, um, just meaning that in the polling it leans a little bit more Republican than Democrat. It's obviously it's suburban. It's rural. It has a little bit of urban in there. It's really a diverse community there. Mm-hmm. And I think that she is struggling to she hasn't been in she hasn't been in office as long right, right. and i think she right. is really trying to define what she's done for voters working in washington um one thing that i think was really interesting about that race is that the aspect of industrial policy of government trying to bring back industrial jobs is really really big in that race mm-hmm. they are hammering tom barrett the state senator who's challenging slotkin over his votes against tax incentives for new GM electric vehicle plants. He just, he is opposed to that idea of industrial policy, just saying that, you know, we shouldn't be spending hundreds of billions of dollars to give, to get GM to come here. We could spend it on other things. But if you go around Lansing today, there are tons of billboards up saying, why did Tom Barrett vote against Michigan auto jobs? You know, mm-hmm. so they're really trying to play on that in that new industrial policy that the Biden administration is trying to push and trying to say, Tom Barrett's not with it. He's not going to bring your jobs back. Now, I don't know if it's going to work. You know, there are it's, it's a, definitely a, it seems like a Republican year. The polling is going back and forth, but usually the party in power loses seats in the midterms. This is going to be the front line. So I think this is going to be if people trust what the Democrats have, are doing and they think that they're actually trying to deliver for them, then I think you'll see Kildee and Slotkin win. Yeah. If they are skeptical about it, then I think they, you know, then I think they probably won't. Um, but the X factor here, I mean, there's a couple X factors here, but one of the big things that no one expected was the was the abortion issue, right? And that could really sure. scramble the map. I remember talking with Alyssa Slotkin in her campaign headquarters, and this was just after all of the um, signatures for um, the ballot initiative were turned in, right? I think it was almost, sure. it was like almost three quarters of a million. Yeah. Almost 800,000 people signed petitions to get that issue on the ballot. And she and her staff were very excited about that, right? Because that's going to drive turnout of typically Democratic voters to the polls during in a year when Democratic enthusiasm might not be as high. Um, so I think that combined with some of their legislative wins could could let Slotkin and Kildee eke, this, eke these ones out. But I think nationally it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to hold on to the House of Representatives, even if they... Uh, even if those two candidates prevail, right? The Senate is probably 50-50, but the House will probably flip just because of a lot of other dynamics in other parts of the nation. But, you know, I wanted to focus on those two races. So yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a rambling answer, that's what I thought. No, no, no. I think that's that's really that's really incisive. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Gavin Bade of Politico. His article is Glory Days in Michigan. Nostalgia for a romanticized past outstrips the reality of an economic rebirth. Uh, we're going to add Chad, Chad Livengood of the Detroit News to the conversation as well. And we want to get going with you on the phones and on social media. What do you make of our economy and jobs and job prospects, the possibility for economic growth uh, 12 days before the midterm elections? Uh, Why do you think we're struggling to innovate and adapt to a changing economy here in Michigan? Do you think that the government, through Uh, legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be able to fill the gaps that are left by corporations kind of pulling away from the social 
support that uh, they used to offer. Uh, also, give us a sense of how all of this influences your choices in just 12 days. Are you leaning toward the Democrats? Do you believe that they can pull this out? Or are you thinking about voting Republican and trying to change who's in charge, at least in Washington? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. Our guest this hour is Gavin Bade. Uh, he is a trade and economics reporter for Politico. He recently wrote a piece titled Glory Days in Michigan. Nostalgia for a romanticized past outstrips the reality of an economic rebirth. Uh, he spent some time in Flint and in Lansing this year talking to people about their economic prospects, about uh, their jobs, about uh, work in general, and how it has changed here in uh, especially in the state of Michigan, uh, but also how our politics influence that change and how our politics and policies influence uh, what their lives look like in the modern work environment. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation, especially how you're thinking about all these things with just 12 days left before the midterm elections. What do you make of our current economy here uh, in Michigan? What do you make of the changes that have unfolded over a long period of time to our economy, especially uh, to the way that we work and earn here in Michigan? And what is that telling you about what you should do on November 8th? Uh, are you satisfied with the democratic response to all of these economic changes? Uh, or are you figuring that uh, maybe it's time to give Republicans a chance to to manage all of this. Uh, as always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you in that way. I also want to welcome another voice to this conversation. Uh, Chad Livengood is a longtime writer for uh, Cranes, but is now a politics editor and a columnist with the Detroit News. He's joined us several times to talk about uh, the ways uh, our economy has changed here in Michigan. Chad, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Glad to be here. Yeah. So you've been really critical about uh, corporate subsidies in particular and trying to attract a few thousand jobs from big automakers or suppliers uh, with with these kinds of incentives. Uh, talk about why that's not the way to develop uh, the economy and fill these gaps in, in people's lives that have opened up. Yeah, I mean, the gaps we're filling right now are, are with our subsidies approach is really just gaps in the manufacturing uh, workforce. Uh, we are, you know, we're still shedding jobs over time. Uh, um, manufacturers are, are uh, automating more and more functions of their 
uh, of their operations. And in what we've been seeing, particularly in the past year, uh, with the great uh, electric vehicle battery race uh, underway, is an effort to try to um, uh, fill the jobs that we know we're going to, or, or fill jobs in, in, in manufacturing to make up for the fact that we're going to start losing more and more jobs at a much rapid pace. And um, what I'm referring to is, is the uh, internal combustion engine has a thousand parts and an electric battery has uh, about 10% uh, of them. Uh, and uh, though that, um, uh, that drivetrain uh, on vehicles uh, has been a big driver of our economy for a long time, particularly in Southeast Michigan. And, and that is going to start uh, disappearing as we do transition to electric vehicles. And there's just going to be uh, fewer uh, small parts plants, uh, fewer tool and die shops needed. And, um, th and this is a, a, a re an economic reality that's going to hit um, places that are very um, uh, dependent on automotive suppliers, places like Macomb County, suburban Wayne County, parts of Detroit as well. Um, and, and Genesee County and Saginaw County, the whole I-75 corridor uh, essentially um, has, a, has a stake in this. And, and this, is, this is going to be, um, this is really going to affect our future. And what I've sort of noted lately is that we're just basically trying to uh, nibble around the edges right now with these subsidy programs uh, to try to replace some of these jobs, but it's not going to be nearly enough uh, to replace the tens of thousands of jobs that can be lost when we, as we transition to electric vehicles. Hmm. Um, we've got a Twitter question that I want to put to both guests. Uh, Freedom to be on Twitter says, uh, "What tariffs on uh, every product not made in one of the 50 states work, or would that make things worse?" Of course, uh, the former president Donald Trump was a big fan of tariffs. Uh, I'm not sure that we have uh, that we have fully explained or, or dug into the effect of those tariffs or even seen what they uh, what uh, effect they will have long term on the economy. But um, but Gavin Bade talk about that approach uh, as a way of trying to encourage more manufacturing in in this country and people to buy more stuff that's made here. Absolutely. So I think that the tariff issue is a is a, an interesting and complicated one. I would say this, you know, we we didn't see a big decoupling or a split between the U.S. and China economies when we put tariffs on a lot of the goods uh, coming into the U.S. during the Trump administration. Now, if you talk to the Trump administration people, they say if they were still in office, they would like even higher tariffs. Hmm. That is a way that they think that they can start to split the United States away from the Chinese economy. Um, the problem with that is you have to be very, you, you know, when you're doing those tariffs, if you start just slapping tariffs on everything, sometimes you start to put tariffs on the parts that people need to import to use in their own manufacturing plants, right? So the economy has become so globalized that you may have a part for, you know, if you're working in a machine shop or something, you may have a part that you can only get from China or can only get from Taiwan or whatever. And if you, you know, so if you, if those parts start getting more expensive, it can be more expensive to invest in, to, to do manufacturing in the U S right. So the tariffs can be sometimes a blunt tool to use, the, um, to use against the outsourcing of jobs. But I think that it's a tool, it's, you know, one of the tools available to the U S I think, what the Biden administration is doing, they've kept all of Trump's tariffs in place on China. They haven't taken any of those off. Um, and I think what they, what the 
what they try to do is use the carrot rather than the stick. They want to use tax incentives and those types of incentive programs to bring jobs back rather than um, rather than erecting more tariffs at the border. The, the the difficulty with higher tariffs, which has been considered by the Biden administration, is it could also start to feed inflation, which is a big, big issue both politically and economically right now. Right. Yeah. So it's a sticky it's a sticky problem because our economies are still so intertwined that if you start slapping on higher tariffs, you're going to see higher prices stateside and people don't want that. So it's a difficult issue. That's why you've seen the Biden administration keep the tariffs in place, not make them any higher. Um, but also use other means like tax incentive programs to try to get jobs back to the United States. Yeah, yeah. Chad, uh, as I said, you've been critical of the subsidies and incentives, but but the flip side of that, of course, is these kind of tariffs. Uh, we are in the middle, I feel like, in Michigan of, of this conversation all the time. If you think about the discussion about the chips that are missing from so many of the vehicles sitting idly on uh, manufacturers' lots because they can't be sold because they don't have the chips that are made overseas. Um, you know, uh, you could you could of course put tariffs on on those chips, but you could also uh, create incentives to have people make more chips here. And there, of course, is legislation that is designed to encourage uh, encourage just that. So so tell us what the balance is supposed to look like here uh, to get the economy here locally uh, going in a way that uh, is much better than it is now. Yeah, I mean, there are efforts underway uh, to try to get more of this of the chip manufacturing um, here in Michigan or just in the upper Midwest uh, in general. And, and as you noted, I mean, you can drive through the city of Flint and see uh, old GM parking lots full of of uh, $75,000 pickup trucks uh, that are inoperable uh, without, or just not fully operable mm-hmm. uh, without the uh, without the chips. Or GM is getting creative and they're sending they're sending out vehicles that don't have heated seats operating, and telling customers that we'll get you those heated seats uh, operating in nine to twelve months Someday, uh, when, right. we, <laughs> when we get that chip from China, um, and then and that's such a vulnerability. Um, that uh, th- that has been exposed in this in this pandemic, and and so yes, we are we're trying to, we're trying to bring that back, and and but it requires heavy government subsidy, and and all all of this requires heavy government subsidy. I mean, we've seen playing out, and this was brought up in the debate last a couple nights ago between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and her Republican challenger Tudor Dixon. Uh, Tudor Dixon criticized the governor for a $700 million tax incentive and break tax break and, and, and cash plan uh, to bring a Chinese-owned uh, uh, battery parts manufacturer to Big Rapids, um, uh, of all places, 2,000 jobs, pretty significant uh, uh, economic uh, development project um, uh, for Big Rapids, which has been, you know, a, a city out state has been dying uh, over time, losing population. And they want to build this massive two and a half billion dollar factory and employ 2000 people within 10 years. Um, But again, it came with uh, a price tag. uh, The state of Michigan is going to sell out one hundred and seventy five million dollars of your money. That is um, 
a little less than what we send the University of Michigan mm. on an annual basis um, uh, to uh, to subsidize le less than six percent of the University of Michigan's budget, uh, um, and and so just just for people's perspective on what 175 million dollars actually looks like in in the uh, in state government. Um, but this is the price that we're paying right now uh, for 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 the, to keep get keep these industries uh, at home. Uh, we could we could also argue about the the you know what what sense it makes to put a two thousand employee uh, uh, factory out in Big Rapids uh, when we have plenty of uh, of workforce available workforce in more populous areas of the state. But that's um, mm -hmm. you know. That's what the the economic developers are basically going where the customer wants them to go, and they're gonna and and then we have to figure it out. We have to figure out how to how to how to um, house that workforce, how to build the schools for that workforce's families, um, mm -hmm. to keep that workforce there. There's a whole lot of uh, additional challenges when when we get into the business of uh, of of um, a, a real estate development uh, from a state standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thomas on Twitter asks a really provocative question, and it's a, about a subject that we haven't talked about in this conversation. Uh, he says, did the automakers supply the good benefits or did the UAW and the workers bargaining collectively produce those benefits? The, the, the role of unions in our past, of course, here is, is huge and no mm -hmm. question that uh, the things that people remember about this uh, community side of, of work are almost all tied to to unionism and unionizing. Uh, is the fact that uh, unions have lost a lot of their truck and, and a lot of their members uh, one of the reasons that we don't have these things? Uh, uh, Gavin, is that is that a connection we should be thinking about as well? I'm so glad that the listener asked that question because this is something I wanted to bring up. This is a, a huge thing that was that, you know, one of the things that happened to when the outsourcing happened, right, is that a lot of union power was really broken systematically, not just in Michigan, but other places as well, right? And now Michigan's a right to work state, which is mind boggling to think when I, you know, even being just 30 years old, it's mind boggling to think that Michigan's a right to work state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that that is, I went to local 659 in Flint and talked to some of the members there. This was the famous local that started the sit-down strike at General yes. Motors back in the 30s, right? And I mean, if you ask union people, they absolutely will say, this is a big reason why we don't have these benefits anymore, right? Every one of those things that we mentioned, the good health care, the good pensions, they were not corporate beneficence. No. This was not, you know, they were fought and won for by the struggle of organized labor. And when I say fought, I mean fought. People died for this stuff back at, during the Depression and afterwards, right? And I think it's a really important thing that we miss is that that sort, that contestation between management and a very powerful labor movement, that is what created the post-war boom and prosperity in places like Michigan, right? They People would not have been making that sort of money. They wouldn't have those sort of benefits if it wasn't for their organizational power, right? And now union strength is not not what it used to be, right? Um, just a shadow of what it used to be in in the state and also in you know in the influence in federal government. So I think that has a really big role here. Um, you know, if I think there are some promising signs for the labor movement there are more organized there's more organizing in the service sector now i think that you know people are still trying to um the uaw is trying to organize some of the new shops that are coming to michigan but it's a it's an uphill fight right you have to fight against 
really powerful corporations. You have to fight against laws like right to work, um, and it's a difficult thing for them. Um, I just want to say to Chad's last point, too, you know, in Washington as well, some of these some of the figures, the price tag for this industrial policy is absolutely eye-popping, right? We talked about semiconductors, just the semiconductor bill, $52 billion, right? These are huge sums of money that we're paying these corporations. And part of the problem is, well, other governments are doing it too, right? The Chinese government has subsidized or just used state-owned companies for their chips industry to try to corner the market, right? And that's why they have a dominant place in the in the world semiconductor market now. The Europeans are doling out hundreds of millions of dollars for chips as well. And so these global corporations are really doing very well in extracting rents from world governments um, because they know that they make really, really critical products. So I think the, it's a difficult situation people are in. I think a lot of world governments are being, I wouldn't say held hostage, but there's, you know, these global corporations have a lot of leverage over them right now, and they're getting a lot of money out of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, we're going to read a couple more uh, social media comments. Uh, Anthony says, uh, both R and D parties want to waste your tax dollars on corporate welfare. Uh, rational response would be to reward neither with your vote. Um, uh, let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Gene in Detroit, you're up next. Gene, what's on your mind? Uh, good morning, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, your guests are uh, both exactly right. Um, the biggest misconceptions uh, in Michigan among white people particularly is that somehow this is still the auto capital of the world mm. and among black people that we're somehow still Motown. <laughs> uh, so we had a tremendous opportunity uh, 30 years ago uh, under the empowerment zone, ironically signed into law by the same president who uh, approved NAFTA uh, to remake uh, the whole economy of this area into looking at the global economy, particularly the developing world, and start producing uh, and, and exchanging trade with them to bring their living standards up to ours rather than ours down to theirs. But uh, uh, even though that opportunity uh, 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 was blown, uh, there are still a lot of gaps in the in the. Uh, appreciate uh, the, the the call and the really great insight. Uh, Gavin Bate, I'll give you a chance to respond. Absolutely. I think both Gene and, and the commenter on Twitter are bringing, uh, bringing up a really important subject here is that, you know, trade just in general has become a very dirty word, both in Washington and in places like Michigan, right? Because we see, you know, people blame NAFTA, people blame the rise of China and its ascension to the World Trade Organization for losing a lot of those manufacturing jobs. And in a way, that's absolutely true, right? People outsourced to places that were lower cost. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a legitimate point to be made that you know we haven't secured a lot of the benefits of trade that you know the government promised us when they did these 
when they did these trade deals, right? It was going to be, oh, well, you know, we can still keep some manufacturing. We'll do higher value stuff. We'll do, you know, we'll integrate into the world economy more. And I think that why we see people so angry at trade um, is just because we haven't, we, the U.S. government hasn't delivered on those promises, right? They say trade is okay if you can diversify your economy, if you can compensate people who, are, who lose jobs through trade, if you can retrain people, if you can do all of these other things that make the economic dislocation that trade brings, if that make it okay, right? So it's just, I think what we've maybe editorializing a bit, but I think what we've done in the U.S. is open our economy to trade over the last 30 years, but haven't done the things to ameliorate the the bad aspects of that, right? There are many programs that go on to try to do worker retraining to compensate people who lost jobs, but none of them are really filling the gap. Um, and that's why I think you see a lot of people very angry at the concept of trade. Um, and this is both Democratic and, Repu- and Republican parties, right? The Republican Party under Trump is a protectionist party, is one that favors tariffs, is one that favors, um, you know, industrial policy in the United States, um, and is one that is not pro-trade. That is a that is a sea change from just a few years ago, right, when the Republican Party was the party of free trade. Yeah. So I think you're seeing the politics scramble on this. Um, and and I'm, I'm not really sure where it's going, but that's why we keep reporting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we need to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Gavin Bate of Politico and Chad Livengood of the Detroit News. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Marianne in Ann Arbor, Tim in Detroit, uh, you're up next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Our guests are Gavin Bade of Politico and Chad Livengood of the Detroit News. We're talking about the economy here in Michigan, jobs, work, the future, all of the things that are on people's minds, I think, as we are just 12 days from the midterm elections here in 2022. Uh, Gavin Bade has an article where he took a look at what people in Flint and Lansing have on their minds about the economy and how it sort of matches up with the political choices that we have on November 8th. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Marianne in Ann Arbor. Marianne, what's on your mind? So one of the things that really struck strikes me about this conversation generally is the lack of actual workable solutions that we think will be successful. So the Republicans don't have a platform for economics other than maybe protectionism. They've certainly completely given up on supply side economics because we can all see that doesn't work. Mm. And if economic development isn't the question, isn't the thing, then what is going to work? I mean, we can all complain. I think the deal is figuring out what actually can make a difference. And to me, a lot of that goes back to wages. 
which means everybody's got to be, you know, shareholders have to be willing to take less money, but you got to put money in the pocket of the people who do have jobs. Otherwise, yeah. your whole economy is going to collapse. It's a, it's a great That's question, Marianne, and, and I'll give both of our guests a, a chance to, to answer it. Uh, Chad, you go first this time. Yeah, um, well, it's kind of to point, touch on Gavin's earlier point about the cost of, of jobs here. Just and also to go back to the uh, seventh congressional district for a second, Eaton County, where GM is going to is building this Ultium battery plant in Delta Township. GM is promising an annual average wage of twenty two dollars and sixty cents an hour, about forty seven thousand dollars a year. It's mm-hmm. seventeen thousand five hundred dollars below the median household income of of Eaton County. The in that county, county is, yeah. yeah, the bedroom community is west west of Lansing. Um, so this is not the wage that allows you to have the second cottage, uh, the second home cottage up in in uh, uh, Iasco County, on Lake Huron. Um, this is not that those those days are gone when it comes to the auto industry. We are paying one hundred and sixty six thousand dollars for each of these jobs. Taxpayers of Michigan are. I would argue, you could spend that much money of training. Uh, an electrical engineer at the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. and that electrical engineer would generate a whole lot more wealth for the state, um, uh, and prosperity for the state, than um, uh, a, a wage worker. And I, I've just been arguing for a long time that that we are neglecting the knowledge economy, and we can see it right in front of our eyes that it is starting to slip away. We. Miss Southeast Michigan has long had the most uh, engineers uh, for the auto industry. There's something like 15 different automakers who have some presence in Southeast Michigan, not just GM, Ford, and Chrysler. And um, as a result, we are we are we've been ground zero for that. But that's starting to leave. Right now, General Motors has 2,000 employees working on developing autonomous vehicles in San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, they are nowhere near the Warren Tech Center. Yeah. Nowhere near the Rensen, um, and we're and we're losing that. And uh, GM can remain figuratively headquartered at the Rensen forever, but if if its workforce is spread across the the globe, um, it's not going to have the same type of presence yeah. that we've known it had for the last hundred years. Yeah, uh, Gavin, what about this question about uh, practical solutions and what the parties? say their solutions are. I mean, I, I think uh, the caller was right that, that there isn't much in the Republican platform that's that's aimed at this other than tax cuts uh, uh, and, and to some extent these in- incentives. But but what are some of the solutions? Totally. Well, just to take the, the Republican side for a moment, obviously they haven't put out um, a, a unified agenda for what they would do if they take power in the midterms. But just being charitable to to that side, I think what they would say is, you know, under Trump, I think the Republican prescription is a dose of protectionism, usually through tariffs. And then just a other than that, it's been a pretty classic Republican playbook domestically of removing regulations and taking off taxes mm-hmm. and just hoping and expecting that the private sector will do its thing, right? If you, you know, that, you know, the tariffs accompanied with some national security actions to limit trade with China um, in some specific sectors, whether that's, you know, clean energy or technology, AI, things like that, that would be the Republican playbook. Fewer regulations, fewer taxes at home, protectionism and national security and hard national security things against China abroad. 
I think the Democratic playbook is a bit different, but there are some similarities. I think you still see a dose of protectionism, especially when it comes to China, right? The tariffs are still in place. And Joe Biden has really escalated the trade war against China in that he's put new federal rules in place that prevent people from trading um, technology with China. They prevent you from sending semiconductor manufacturing materials to China, things like that. So the national that, that aspect's still there. But then I think Democrat states, you know, in the on the Democratic um, or on the domestic side would say we need more we need more active industrial policy. We need to be doing these subsidies. We need to be investing in worker retraining. Um, and then on the and then they want to try to change the rules of the game when it comes to international trade agreements, right? Maybe we're not going to take off tariffs for other nations, but can we negotiate a new type of trade deal that could facilitate investment, you know, both at home and abroad? So I think they're still working on that. They call this the worker-centered trade agenda. Um, but I think they're still trying to figure out how they can balance, you know, a having some protectionism, especially for critical, uh, critical industries, um, with trying to open up to... Uh, to investment from abroad. So I think you're seeing them work through that with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the CHIPS bill. Is it going to be enough? I think these are all incomplete solutions at present, but there is, a, there is at least a playbook. They want to at least try to take some of the aspects of social citizenship that used to be um, doled out by corporations with the pressure from unions and have the state do that instead. And hmm. so I think, yes, there's incomplete solutions on both sides, but there are playbooks, at least in theory. Mm, yeah. Uh, Jake on Twitter says, uh, we still lead in manufacturing weapons and support it with industry with a blank check. The manufacturers hold immense political power. Dwight D. Eisenhower warned against this as he left office, but we have failed, and the military-industrial complex gains greater power and wealth. Let's quickly go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, I've got only about a minute left, but go ahead. Okay. I just, uh, I'm a union electrician and I've worked on just about every large job in Detroit. And I've gotten a lot of comments about being a Detroiter. Matter of fact, Stephen, I think we're neighbors. Um, <laughs> in these jobs couldn't get done without union labor, uh, plumbers, uh, carpenters, um, and when I talk to people, young people, like at the grocery store, I'm like, how much are you earning? Yeah. Do you want to get into a trade? And mm -hmm. um, they're like, well, how would I do that? And I give them the number. I'm like, here, call. Sure. All you have to do is pass a test and be able to lift 50 pounds. Um, I love my union. Um, and I think more people we need to accept the union mentality of a group of people that are going to fight for a living wage. For better wages. Yeah, Tim, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are going to run out of time. And I think that's a really great point. And your personal experience there really matters, right? Uh, you have found economic stability uh, through union work. It is still It is still possible, even if it is not nearly as pre prevalent as it uh, as it used to be. Tim, I really appreciate the call uh, and the mm -hmm. comments. Okay, we are out of time, unfortunately, but uh, I want to thank Gavin Bade and Chad Livengood both for being here. Great conversation, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks okay. for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how to be more humble in our political positions with Monica Guzman, who is the author of I Never Thought of It That Way. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.